Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Child Support Research Podcast from MEF Presents. I'm Justin Germain, a researcher at MEF Associates, and I'll be your host today. You've probably all heard the phrase evidence-based policy. From education to employment to child welfare, it's pretty widely accepted that research can help build evidence to shape better policy for these sorts of programs. But how does research help the child support program? What kind of policies can it shape? And stepping even further back for some listeners, what does the child support program even do? For those of you who aren't familiar with the child support program, it's federally funded, implemented with matched funding by states and tribes. It helps make sure children receive important financial and medical support from both parents, even when they live in separate households. It serves over 20 million children across the country, and many of whom live in low-income households that rely on child support as a key source of income. Now, I recently had the chance to sit down with four child support experts at a national child support conference in Pittsburgh to talk about an exciting new report that maps out what they're calling the child support research agenda. It's sort of like a blueprint or call to action that they hope will spark and guide research in the field over the next few years. It's available on a user-friendly website we developed here at MEF at childsupportresearch.org. You should definitely check it out online, and you can think of this podcast as a sort of audio accompaniment to that report. And with that, let's head back to Pittsburgh and let each of the guests go ahead and introduce themselves, starting with one of the project's funders. Lauren? Uh, Hi, Justin. This is Lauren Antello. I'm a senior social science analyst in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, uh, sometimes referred to as ASPE, and that's in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, this is Andrew Chin with the Washington State Division of Child Support. I'm the Chief of Field Operations. Hi, my name is Asaf Glosser. I'm a principal associate at MEF Associates in our Seattle office. And hi, I'm Alicia Griffin. I am the managing director of Alicia Griffin Works, former director from California and New Jersey, uh, serving over 20 years in child support. Well, thank you all for being here. It's going to be great to have your insight into this discussion today. I think it's important to start from the beginning, which is the project's funder. So Lauren, I think it'd be helpful to hear about this project and ASPE's goals for it. So to you, what is a research agenda and what does ASPE hope to see coming out of this effort? So since the child support program's inception, there have been efforts um, led by both ASPE and our partners in the Federal Office of Child Support Enforcement to really bring together the child support community and and discuss um, what might be the most pressing policy questions of the day, Uh, and in turn, lay out uh, a plan of sorts to address those policy questions. And that sort of in itself is um, what becomes the research agenda. And when we, about two years ago, were looking back and realized that um, we hadn't done such an effort in in quite some time, and there were a lot of changes coming about in the program, both from the Federal Office of Child Support Enforcement's final rule, as well as uh, changes in staffing across the country, even at the federal level, and even um, in the academics and research world that had uh, traditionally focused on child support. So this was a real effort um, to think about how we could come together again as a community decide what were these most pressing questions that we needed to answer, and then set out um, almost like a plan or a number of steps that we would take over the course of the next 10 years. So I think that and uh, is sort of how we would define the research agenda. All right. Well, thank you. And now, Asaf, you helped organize kind of both this project and the convening that came out of it, bringing together child support policymakers and practitioners. Um, so what do you see as the audience for this research agenda? 
I think there are a few audiences. So researchers are obviously one of those. And there that's both academic researchers as well as folks like myself who do policy research on sort of program evaluation and the like. And so for that group, the, the audience is really sort of inspiring to think, inspiring them to think about the type of work that they can be doing that's policy relevant. I also see funders as an audience for this. So the federal government clearly, which has been investing in child support research, but also states I and mean, also private funders such as foundations to help them see where their opportunity to make their dollars really have an effect on program operations. Um, you know, the last big category of practitioners, the folks who run child support programs at the state and county level, I think for them, they're wrestling with these types of issues on a day-to-day -day basis and having some guidance, having some inspiration, having some ideas about how research can support their efforts is really critical. Um, you know, I think the last group that the research agenda can speak to are all the folks who help run programs adjacent to child support. So whether it's TANF programs, directors of food stamp programs, um, child support serves, serves a lot of low-income families um, and understanding how these programs are intertwined and the role that research can play in understanding that really feels critical to me. So it seems like this research agenda could be used by a wide variety of populations. And, and it's helpful today that we have two practitioners in the room. And so Andrew and Alicia, I guess this next question is for you. I'd love to hear um, from you about how you've used research in your practice before. One concept in particular is just behavioral economics. And if you go back and look at how the child support uh, program was established, a lot of it was from the negative incentive side. We would think that to garner a response from somebody that you're serving documents on is to propose a very high child support order because there'd be a high incentive for somebody to turn around and, and respond and participate in the process. And that's how we built our systems. And when we think of what we've learned from behavioral economics is those are actually negative incentives and people don't respond to those. Uh, we ran a pilot where we were contacting folks ahead of time before we served them documents. And again, the research in behavioral economics is telling us communicate, um, let people know what is going on and you know, work from the positive side. And so that's influenced how we've, how we've um, restructured some of, some of how we do our work. And so moving from this, going forward, given the different perspectives that you all come from in the room, what are some of the most pressing future avenues for research that you've noticed in the research agenda, and why do they matter to the field? I guess I could start. Um, you know, I think the, you know, the setting of orders is really, and the final rule that, that Lauren mentioned earlier, um, those are really key areas that we're struggling with um, at the ground. So what is the right methodology for setting the orders. You know, the range when you look at guidelines across the state is really, really broad. And so we need some better help in understanding that, how to assess ability to pay, and how do you think about ability to pay against also the cost of living and what's reasonable in that community? Because you could say, you know, a formula is a formula is a formula, but, you know, what happens in upper state Washington or northern California is very different than what might be happening in Orange County. And does that formula actually really play out um, on the ground? Another um, area that's been focused on a lot at the federal level has been um, un better understanding the population in the child support program and how it, they potentially overlap with other public benefits programs. You know, I think we have... We do have good data in the child support program, but we're very limited to an understanding, um, particularly those who may not have formal child support orders. We rely a lot on the Census Bureau's current population survey, which has its own challenges, 
um, to really tell us what's happening in that um, sort of the other the other families that we could potentially reach. And so it's just kind of interesting for me to think about whether um, it's conversations that were happening around the farm bill, around child support cooperation requirements, whether it might be um, what kind of overlap when you look at states that are applying for Medicaid uh, waivers for community engagement and employment. There are all kinds of ways that the families that we work with might be um, intersecting with these other programs. And I don't think that we have a real good handle. And on the flip side, too, if um, there's a whole other conversation to be had about whether, um, they should, whether they should be served by the child support program. I think you can look at other program things beyond child support. So co-parenting is a topic that comes up now mm -hmm. that I think we could benefit a lot of research in. And I'd say that because it helps drive and move us forward in child support. You know, historically, we would have um, parents who would say, well, they link child support with visitation and being able to, if, if you're the non-custodial parent and you're not living with your children, you'd kind of want to know when can I see them? And, and it's inextricably linked from a person perspective. But from our programs, we've always told our, our clients, no, they're not. They're two separate legal concepts. And, you know, Washington State now, we're looking a little bit more at holistic services and thinking of the whole family and having research that could connect what the effect of child support payments would be on a healthy parent-child relationship and setting that as a goal would help us drive that forward um, to be able to show evidence to um, not only public, but also the, our caseworkers even who have historically not done this, um, why it's important. Well, and I think that's... Lauren's point is so important to actually being able to start linking that data. I mean, the eligibility and the data definitions of who's on which program makes it very difficult sometimes to identify those families and really look at it as a family event. You know, can we, so if I lose my job, it's not just about child support, it's about work engagement, it's about, you know, family health, it's about, you know, all sorts of things. How do we marshal around that family event rather than thinking about them all as separate and individual things that, you know, and, and I think it's so important to try and figure out how to collect that data in a much more robust and, and usable, usable fashion. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was struck as Lauren was talking that the thinking about the research agenda and thinking about the role of research plays, there, there are two underlying questions. How can we use research to serve the existing population mm -hmm. as good as possible? How can we make good decisions about orders? How can we connect non-custodial parents to employment supports that work that increase their capacity to pay? But there's a whole nother conversation about what is the role of the child support program for families not currently engaged? So where you have non-custodial parents, the extent to which the child support program can help increase the stability for their lives. And so it's two, two underlying questions. And I think at, a, at an even more basic level, work and changing family circumstances, mm -hmm. the, the child support system, the child support program needs to sort of catch up and figure out how to deal with that. So what do custody arrangements look like? How do you account for the fact that a child might spend a couple days with one parent and a couple days with another parent? And what does that mean for who is the custodial parent? Who is the non-custodial parent? On the work side, it, we sort of know that the lack of income makes it really hard to meet your obligation. But mm -hmm. how, what is the role of the child support program in getting people connected with supports that will increase their employability, that will increase their earnings? And, and that's really difficult because what do we know about what actually works mm -hmm. in terms of helping get people jobs? But also, what is the role of the child support program, which has not traditionally taken that on as its mantle? Right. Do we even need to be? 
using the terms custodial and non-custodial does that make any sense anymore in families that are sharing and moving and changing um you know is that turning families off to our services by being so parochial in the way we described ourselves and delivered our services when you talk about um, employment services and, and helping non-custodial parents find work, you're right, it hasn't been a part of child support. And I think that you'll find in a lot of states and a lot of county programs, um, when we want to say, let's experiment with employment services, our administrators and other program folks will say, well, we have job search in other areas or there is, you know, and, and maybe it's the employment security department who does unemployment. You know, they're the ones who are supposed to focus on job search, not us, it's not child support. And so I think, you know, again, pushing the agenda and doing some pilot programs and some research that shows, well, actually, it's not that the job gets done, but who does it? Builds something. So when the child support program says, I will help you find a job, that means so much more as far as future collection. If as a child support program, we help you find a job, then there is that, that piece of, wow, that they were very helpful and there's a connection. And then by, you know, just naturally, there's going to be a little bit more incentive there to, um, to make those payments and all that's to help the family. And so, again, this research will, it's part of the research agenda will help show, um, I hope it helps show (laughs) that there's a positive effect there and that'll help convince people, yes, this is something that we should be doing. Now, unless I'm gravely mistaken, the answers to these questions probably aren't on page one of Google. So it'll probably take a lot of extensive research to actually find the answers to these questions. So Asaf, as a researcher, you you likely know that there's often tension between conducting research that's rigorous and conducting research that's feasible. So how do some of the issues we were just talking about and those in the agenda kind of fit within that tension? You know, I think at the end of the day, you you have it right that it's there, there are these two competing goals. You want something that's timely, that's actionable, but it also has to be credible. So you can do fast research that answers the question, but if it answers it poorly and it's not valid and it's not reliable, it's of little help. But if you do extremely rigorous research that's six or seven years in the making, it's often missed its moment. And if you're running a 4D program or you're that line level worker who's trying to make a decision in the here and now about where do I refer this person or how do I make a decision about their earnings, um, it, it the moment has passed you by and you can't do it. And so I think the starting point is what the research question is and sort of from a policymaker, from a practitioner perspective, what's what's the information you need to guide your decision making? And then you identify the methods and then you identify the approach that balances that tension. And that's what I like the way that we put together this research agenda is because there are um, examples of, of all of those things, right? There's um, examples of descriptive research that you one could imagine if you had someone on staff or you had an EMAPS, like in the case of Washington State, you could perhaps easily do this um, versus larger, um, longer-term impact evaluations. And I think, again, going back to the original goal of this document was that we brought everyone together because not everyone's going to be able to fund a five-year randomized control trial and not everyone is going to have in-house um, expertise to do some quick data analytics. But if we're we're communicating and we're sharing across not just child support, but our partners and other human services agencies and even on the health side, the results and building on each other's work, I think that's where we get to answering some of these policy questions. 
So given this need for research or need for an additional step up for research, I think it would be helpful for our listeners before we wrap up to know some practical ways that policymakers and practitioners can use this agenda to essentially improve their program. Does anyone have thoughts on that? So I think if you're a state child support director or someone at the Federal Office of Child Support Enforcement, you're thinking about how to use this research agenda, the starting point is to look at the issue areas we've identified and see what aligns with your own priorities. How can this document help me get where my program needs to be? And we provide concrete examples of potential research projects. They're just examples. They're not the only things that have to be done. But if you're someone who has a question you're struggling with, I think this starts to lay the groundwork for how you get answers that are policy and operationally relevant. And I think it's also helped um, some of us have that conversation with our colleagues in the community much better. So if you're able to say, you know, look, let's do some collaborative work in this area, um, because while I may have a lot of data inside my program, I don't necessarily have data about some of those other programs and don't have access to it. But if we can, if it can help us create those collaborations and spur actually even some of our legislators and some of our control agencies to actually start to say, well, maybe we should explore some of this. I'm hoping that it will in fact trigger some of that. Yeah, you say? That, yeah I mean, I think that collaboration, it, we have to. These are huge issues. These are huge questions that are on this agenda, and none of us are really equipped to do it alone. And so it does it does foster that partnership. And I think that even with other other partners outside of the child support world, where we see some of these intersections, and maybe that will be you know some of what Lauren said that you know child support's kind of disappeared, and maybe this is a way that we can get ourselves back in on the agenda and say, well, you know, maybe you don't care about child support anymore, but guess what? We're still here <laughs> because we affect so many other programs, and that may be another way to just get some more attention and kind of get the ball moving again. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with both of you. I, I um, in my mind, would envision someone literally taking the document with them and to a conversation with colleagues, who, whether it be in other human services agencies or a foundation or a university to start the conversation. So um, that's really what I hope happens. Special thanks again to our guests, Lauren Antello, Andrew Chin, a soft glosser, and Alicia Griffin, who all took time out of their busy schedules to participate in this audio roundtable. Our podcast today was produced by Angie Gaffney at MEF Associates, with help from the sound engineering folks at Talent Network Inc., recorded us all in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Podcast Village in Washington, D.C. Our music is Penny the Snitch by Ikebe Shakedown from the Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Licensing. Support for this podcast and for the Child Support Research Agenda Project comes from the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Now, I should note that while they funded the work, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent their official positions nor those of the department. You can learn more about MEF on our website at mefassociates.com. And while I may just be slightly biased since I had a hand in writing it, you should definitely check out the full research agenda at childsportresearch.org. Again, I'm Justin Germain. I hope your curiosity has been piqued and that you'll listen in next time.